to Urban Next Exchanges, a podcast by UrbanNext.net, the digital platform that aims to expand architecture to rethink cities. You are listening to an episode from Nature of Enclosure, a series hosted by Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, exploring the status of enclosure in the design fields and its impact on contemporary forms of capital, culture and politics. Welcome back to the seventh session of our mini-series entitled The Nature of Enclosure, where we have been exploring architectures of enclosure situated between synthetic systems with the constructed envelope and our biological environments. The practice of architecture and urban planning tend to be caught between three tensional modes of a capitalistic structure, state, capital, and society. Today, in 2020, the globe is faced with the massive environmental and social challenges. Do models of planning and architectural enclosures interact with this process of climate change directly or even holistically? Or do the design fields succumb to development tax incentives, continuously failing zoning laws and engineering ornamentation that follow the flux in cultural trends and economic priorities? Not so different from Peter Sloterdijk's spherology, envelopes of existence and enclosures are merely a process, moving people and capital from one internalized space to another. As we identify contemporary challenges faced in a post-COVID world, perhaps the problems within the design praxis and ideological incompetence are failing to produce innovative environmental strategies. In other words, How can the design fields learn from ecological sciences, encourage social equity, and address climate change to provide better alternatives, resisting the architecturally enclosed forms of capital? This session today brings together scholars from architectural history, biological sciences, and design research to reflect on climate change, air quality, and cultures from within the architectural envelopes as the nature of enclosure. We are joined today by Daniel Barber, Daisy Ames, and Mayling Loco. Daniel Barber is an Associate Professor of Architecture and Chair of the PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania, Stuart Weizmann School of Design. His latest book, Modern Architecture and Climate, Design Before, and, uh, Design Before Air Conditioning, Princeton University Press just this year, explores how leading architects of the 20th century incorporated Uh, climate-mediating strategies and shows how regional approaches to climate adaptability were essential to the development of the modern architecture. Barber received a PhD in architectural history and theory from Columbia and a Master's of Environmental Design from Yale. Daisy Ames is the founding principal of Studio Ames and is an adjunct assistant professor at Columbia University. After completing the professional women on the professional women's tennis circuit, uh, she enrolled at the Yale School of Architecture, where she received her Master's of Architecture. She has previously been a faculty member at Rice, Yale, Cornell, and Pratt. Currently a member of the faculty at Columbia, the University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation, Ames co-coordinates the GSAP Housing Lab, leading a team of researchers on the topic of housing at the intersection of climate change. Mayling Loco is an architectural scientist and researcher from Ghana in the Philippines and currently an assistant professor in the School of Architecture at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. 
Her work centers on the upcycling of agro-waste and biopolymer materials into high-performance clean building material systems for humidity control, indoor air quality remediation, and water control applications. Her work has been nominated for numerous awards, such as the Royal Academy Dorman Dorfman Award in 2020, and included in exhibitions globally, uh, as well as uh, in the Serpentine Gallery in London just last year in 2019. Daniel, Daisy, Mei-Ling, thank you all for being here. The format for today's session is organized as we usually have it in three parts, two provocations, a response, and discussion. I'll first invite Daniel to initiate today's session by discussing his work on the role of architecture impacting forms of comfort, capital, and climate change, followed by Daisy's additional provocation addressing questions related to the environment, representation, and air quality in damaged urban sites. Afterwards, we will hear a formal response from Mei Ling and open it up for discussion. Daniel, the virtual floor is yours. I wanted to just take a minute to, to think about comfort and, and to think about comfort as, as the sort of object of analysis uh, for architecture or for a kind of speculative architecture that's still you know, coming together. And, and, and you know, it's funny because you referenced Slaughter Deke and one of my favorite um, sort of lines from him, I think I'm quoting verbatim, um, uh, air conditioning will be the, uh, not, it's not going to be verbatim, but more or less, uh, air conditioning will be the space political theme of the coming era was one of Peter Slaughter Deke's kind of, you know, phrases that came out of the terror from the air, the little pamphlet that was excerpted from Spheres. Um, and yeah, to really think about how our thermal spaces, our thermal interiors have come to sort of resonate as spaces of, of contestation, but, you know, uh, of politics, of, of kind of, uh, you know, where a certain experience, where, you know, a certain sort of atmosphere, a certain sort of affect and kind of way of being on the thermal, in the thermal interior, um, you know, is about a certain type of comfort, is about a certain type of excess, is about a certain relationship to carbon, um, uh, you know, the ways in which it's all sort of playing out in, um, in thermal, uh, thermally controlled spaces, whether those that control is through windows and shading devices or through thermostats and uh, HVAC plants. And, you know, and even more so, and I'll try to come back to this, but even more so in, in reference to the, the pandemic and the, the sort of um, interest in air conditioning and ventilating that has, has reemerged. But, uh, I want to just develop though this kind of basic theme around comfort for a second. And, and, and I've been um, using a term, um, uh, a phrase that's, that's helped me to think through this, which is just sort of thinking about how to design for discomfort and thinking about how uh, a sort of means of, 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 designing for discomfort in the sense of sort of making it pleasurable, right? And I'm not talking about, of course, uh, individuals in various parts of the world that are under strain and some desire to kind of, you know, make their strain worse, but rather for those of us, uh, you know, who are relatively comfortable uh, uh, in many different parts of the world, but certainly in the Euro-American context, can start to think about how the sort of habits and lifestyles and ways that we interact with spaces 
uh, you know, have a very specific carbon cost, right? I mean, that can be calculated if we so desire, or we can just know that there's a strong, a high cost, and and uh, think you know, keep that keep that in the abstract. But the 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 level of comfort, the kind of experience again of that thermal interior uh, is you know starts to sort of charge as kind of one of the major sort of charges and points of circulation for the fossil, the kind of global fossil fuel system, right? So, so really trying to make those connections quite uh, tight, right? And to connect the, the, again, the changing of the thermostat and the, uh, tracing that back to, um, you know, coal pits and oil mines and fracking fields and other sorts of spaces where this energy is being produced and the effects that it's having and you know, geopolitical effects and geophysical effects, right? I mean, just the, 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 numerous layers through which uh, sort of, you know, driving our thermal comfort machine is, is sort of keeping us uh, caught up in, in, in a number of systems that we were sort of better also trying to get out of simultaneously, right? I mean, trying to think of other ways to relate to resources and other, other conditions to occupy. So, so right, to, to, to think about comfort uh, as this sort of, as, again, not, not to the extent that we would be sort of torturing ourselves or others, but but thinking about how we can live at a sort of edge of discomfort in a in a somewhat more uh, carbon appropriate uh, manner, and 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 the ways in which that really sort of um, changes some of the equations relative to broader questions around energy transitions, and, and which is to say that. Um, you know, kind of scraping that layer of icing off of the cake, if you will. I don't know, that just kind of sort of came to me, right? But scraping that uh, icing off of the cake in terms of the comfort, I mean, that's that's a, it's a, the goal, the bar is literally lowered, right? The sort of what what the, the renewable energy system needs to meet is not as voracious. And, and, you know, there's other kind of implications of reduction to comfort. I mean, the the kind of sweaty Philadelphia summer, you know, trying to survive it without air conditioning in just these past few months. And in fact, sort of kvetching with colleagues about, you know, how we were managing on less, trying to use less air conditioning and, and productivity was reduced, right? I mean, there are many reasons that productivity has been in flux in the past few months, of course, but this sort of sense of like sitting here and sweating and not getting anything done, um, um, as as a as a means of of understanding the impacts of comfort, right, and kind of and how how we the expectations are kind of aspirations transform as we as we think about sort of different relationships to comfort and and so again, really trying to kind of think about comfort as a kind of carbon object as a sort of carbon budget that we're spending and and that can be redistributed and that can have you know sort of other benefits aside from cooler air in a in a skyscraper in the middle of Manhattan, for example, right, in, in the middle of August or, or in many other sorts of locations. So, you know, I what I would want to do at, at this point is sort of tar- start to look at some some buildings and, and to, to try to ekphrasis this, right? This is the art of describing an image in words, which I'm don't happen to be especially skilled at, but but to sort of begin to imagine some of these these buildings or at least kind of their facades or their sections or this, you know, try to um, um, reinforce maybe with your own visual material if it's available, right? To to think about the facade as this kind of device that 
materializes and kind of manages these relationships between uh, comfort and, and the kind of climate outside. And, and, you know, so what I would show in this moment are, are buildings from Brazil in the 40s and 50s that had these like six different kind of positions of levers and layers and louvers and um, screens and, and, and curtains and open windows that are opened and others that didn't, et cetera. Uh, different means of kind of adjusting, right, the facade to the, the climate outside, right? Um, uh, mechanical in a sense, I mean, in the, insofar as there were lovers and, and gadgets that were uh, exaggerating human effect, right? But, but not mechanical in the sense of, um, of a mechanical system of ducts, of blown air, et cetera. This, this, although there were often ventilation systems that accompanied these shading uh, uh, rituals, um, uh, there was not air conditioning for the most part. Um, so to think about, yeah, to think about these facades and these sort of dynamic facades in a kind of you know, early version of it before that was something that was automated and all kind of done through uh, responses to, you know, to sunlight, et cetera, but when it's done sort of by hand and, and you know, putting those facades next to more or less contemporaneous emergence of sealed curtain wall office towers um, um, and really straining to think about, you know, to look at buildings such as the Equitable Tower uh, built in Portland in 47, or of course the Seagram's Tower in Manhattan 10 years later, um, you know, what we do with these sort of sealed objects, right? And, and how we really consider them as sort of legacies of a, of, a, of a carbon world that has, you know, that we're kind of desperate to leave behind, right? And, 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 and in a sense, how these kind of sealed towers really spark for us a, a certain imagination about, about different ways of life, about sort of how this kind of post-carbon world might look and feel and, you know, almost as a kind of baseline or as a, as a sort of um, understanding of a foil in a sense of, you know, of, of sort of what the, relations to carbon that you know the, how we're, what we have wrought right i mean so much of kind of what we've wrought in terms of our you know, carbon profligacy over the past couple of decades is sort of visible and evident in buildings uh, we can kind of trace it and, and read it across facades right so yeah so so trying to really think about the building as this sort of climatic device right and and think about uh, the different values and the different ways of understanding a facade system and its kind of relationships to interiors and different values in terms of thinking about the comfort again that that emerges on the interior um, and 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 how that you know some of the simple equations that emerge and I think I'm sort of closing up here but some of the simple equations that emerge uh, on the one hand um, just the simple equation that says, you know, the comfort that we produce inside uh, through fossil fueled systems quite literally produces discomfort in a, on a temporal scale, right? I mean, and, and even geographic today, I mean, we, you know, we no longer say kind of climate change is, is coming soon and will disrupt everything. I mean, it's already happening, right? So, so uh, you know, that sort of displacement is, is a sort of real effect and one of those sort of simple equations to make. And the other one is, again, just that sort of lowering our sense of comfort does not mean, you know, uh, some sort of horrible experience, but just sort of experimenting with uh, sort of how it feels to operate differently in, in kind of the thermal relationship to conditioned space, right? And how we can imagine different types of life and different ways of operating within, uh, within these conditioned spaces as a, you know, as a mode of interaction with the broader carbon, energy, et cetera, system.
I, I guess that's a provocation. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely is. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Um, I, I think there's a lot uh, we can we can bring into the discussion. Certainly, uh, a few things I just want to point out briefly, uh, uh, just just for a moment, is um, the fact that there's been an increased interest in air handling systems in a, a COVID world is absolutely true, uh, and therefore I'm curious if there's. Um, uh, the the effect, which would be an increased uh, dependency on uh, air handling uh, devices such as air conditioning systems and so forth. It's, it's another question to follow up on what you've suggested, um, and then and then the the um, kind of precedents that you've given uh, both uh, you know in Brazil or uh, the the seal. I, I love this idea of the sealed uh, objects. Um, I love that idea as a provocation. First of all, let me be clear <laughs> clear about that. And um, and you know there was work that I was doing uh, not too long ago uh, on Lucia Costa, and some of Costa's work that was going on in Rio was actually I think highly misunderstood. And, and a lot of the development projects that have been based on Costa's master plans um, have just completely blocked uh, the kinds of um, air systems that would have been traveling across and traversing uh, that landscape, and yet um, have been completely sealed off, which is um, com- uh, entirely the opposite of uh, Costa's uh, intentions, both socially and uh, and through an environmental uh, decision, uh, environmental strategy. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll come we'll come back to these things. Um, uh, so thank you, Daniel. Uh, Daisy, I'm, I'm uh, whenever whenever you're ready. I think the the title of the discussion today, this uh, nature of enclosure, has provided me with a new lens to consider the ways in which we live and have access to essential elements of our built environment. So for one, like the enclosure draws to mind an image um, of of an environment that is safe, inclusive, and resilient, um, and two, like the nature of it, um, the nature of this enclosure calls to mind elements of our socio-political climate that determine one's access to those things. So there are many firms that are designing like beautiful and meaningful projects today, um, but they're not addressing environmental issues explicitly in their practices. Um, So we know from getting closer to such projects and we start to unpack some of their uh, lead platinum accolades and whatnot, we begin to understand that um, the nature of the carbon emissions, for example, was calculated using a deeply flawed point system. Um, There are a few people who address environmental issues you know, explicitly like Kill Mo when thinking about air, um, Carl Zimring when um, I think about waste, and Mabel Wilson in environmental racism. So these are people who I admire and respect and individuals who have influenced a lot of how I approach design. And for me, what unites these scholars is um, they're speaking about factors of the built environment that many people um, may not be readily able to see or aspects of our environment that are purposely hidden out of view. And like looking back at my own education and my own training and my own teachers, Peter Eisenman and Pierre Vittorio O'Reilly, they too were focused on these latent factors, albeit from different points of view, um, you know, by making visual a kind of conceptual rigor or helping locate a very kind of strategic representational technique 
for communicating these latent factors, and both of which I still, you know, rely on and are influenced by today. So there are a few ways that I've addressed this in my work over the years, and there are examples of drawings um, that have been published in a few architectural journals. And these drawings, um, what I'm trying to do is innovate a, a methodology for seeing uh, latent line work in artwork. Uh, one of these drawings is called MRS, and it's based on um, a, a black square painting that has been done um, by three different artists at three different times over a hundred years, Kazimir Melovich, Ad Reinhardt, and Richard Serra. Um, and this was published in University of Maryland's Seesaw Journal. Um, so in this drawing, which no doubt requires a closer reading as all of the drawings in this series do, allows me to see compositional eccentricities um, like Melovich's distinguishable like white frame around the black square, as well as the visible craculaire from the layered wet paint. Um, Reinhardt's use of, you know, very slightly different black um, paint color um, results in a kind of very subtle three by three geometric composition. Um, and Sarah's dispersal of pastel powder on top of the lithograph crayon produces a kind of layered freneticism. Um, another drawing is um, called MRL and it's based on um, grids that are drawn by artists or painted by artists, Agnes Martin, Robert Reinhardt and Solowit, and this was published in Log. And this drawing, um, I'm trying to kind of distinguish different relationships um, that these artists are making to the grid or ways that they're interpreting the grid. So Robert Ryman's work, um, there's a very um, you know, implied spatial relationship to the grid that tries to obfuscate the grid, um, the hierarchical components of the grid, whereas um, LeWitt takes a more um, uh, temporal relationship to it through directionality and movement and the precision of the hand-drawn hand line. And, and Agnes Martin's artwork offers, um, you know, for me, what, what I read is a more atmospheric um, appreciation for the grid. Um, the final drawing is called MRT, which is based off of Mary Course, Rachel White-Reed, and Talba Arbach's artwork. And it tries to highlight each of these artists' relationship to light. Um, and I've translated their techniques into line work. And in this way, I've engaged in um, trying to lay bare what Mary Course does with the triangulation between the viewer, the artwork, and the light source, and the shadow casting that results from uh, Rachel White Reed's, uh, specifically her resin projects, and then the kind of impression making of light that Talba Arbach does, um, specifically in her series um, called Fold. So this is a framework for thinking about line works and in these um, artworks. Um, and it came out of reading a psychoanalyst, Christopher Bolas's um, book called The Shadow of an Object, in which he coined this term, quote, unthought known. Um, I found this term useful for addressing elements of our built environment um, that we, at some deep level, um, remain inaccessible to our conscious thought. This is, so these drawings for me were opportunities to take seriously aspects of our surround that we may not see, but we sense at some deep level. 
So I'm currently working on um, a project that looks at the environmental impacts that say, you know, a client may not see when they build a project. Um, kind of the, the elements that I'm specifically interested in are air, energy, and waste, and kind of really bringing them to the forefront of an architectural project. Um, and so for today, um, Jeffrey aptly noted that we might be talking about air and that's exactly where I'm going. Um, for me, the backdrop for thinking about air um, today is our current sociopolitical moment. So I'm thinking about George Floyd as one of the many people who have cried out over the years, if not centuries, I cannot breathe. I'm thinking about the 200,000 people in the United States, nearly 1 million worldwide who have died of COVID and airborne virus. I'm thinking about the wildfires in the Northwest that have torn through millions of acres, raining ash and emitting uh, endless smokes and fumes into the air. So a way that I'm translating um, what I've outlined before about the elements of our built environment that we cannot see, um, I'm really trying to hold in mind at the same time this moment, this socio-political moment. Um, and it's more recently through a series of spatial mapping drawings um, of historical red line um, practices. And um, how these practices specifically threaten air quality in um, the same neighborhoods today. So the first um, drawing that we worked on is, um, you know, in Birmingham, Alabama, there is such a thing as a Title V major source operating permit. And this is a permit that allows hazardous amounts of air pollutants to be released in neighborhoods in which these companies are located. So these these companies are located um, in formerly redlined communities, and um, which still to this day have a high concentration of black citizens, according to the U.S. Census. So the question is, how is it that these companies can knowingly get these approvals? Like who? Who's really making these decisions um, when it comes to knowingly? releasing pollutants into neighborhoods. Um, another uh, map that we've made is one of Portland, Oregon, um, which is a city that has one of the largest heat disparities where there's significantly less green space in redlined areas to non-redlined areas with up to um, 12.6 degrees Fahrenheit difference between the air temperature and these two communities. Um, this has everything to do with early disinvestment in which vulnerable communities lack adequate um, spaces and green streets, um, sorry, green um, trees. Um, and it also, these were, you know, had they had adequate um, investment, this would have been an opportunity for shade, would help mitigate heat island effect um, and provide other health benefits like air purification. Uh, the third map is uh, Oakland, California, and this measures um, diesel particulate matter in the air um, that are in the 99th percentile for the state um, that are specifically in districts of former, formerly labeled D or C grade on the um, Hulk redlining maps. So as a result, these residents in these neighborhoods um, visit, visit the emergency room um, for asthma-related complaints 2.4 times more than residents in formerly green, green areas, 
they were rated A on the um, Hulk maps. So for me as a designer, um, you know, at this moment in time, uh, what has historically been a kind of latent aspect are there are latent elements of our built environment, um, perhaps felt, perhaps not felt, perhaps just experienced on some level and haven't made up to our, our, our conscious thought, so to speak. Um, they, they are manifesting themselves visually um, today. So if we can see something, then we're able to think about it. And if we're able to think about it, we're able to create knowledge. And if we're um, creating knowledge, we're able to share an understanding and mobilize together to address it. So representation becomes a super powerful tool for engagement, um, one that communicates spaces, places, individuals whose health is at risk as a result of um, historical socio-political events that have moved from being latent to blatant and shine a light on how um, our well-being has in some cases been predetermined. Well, uh, well said, first of all. Uh, I think there's um, some some um, interest as it relates to uh, representing the invisible. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, with um, the issues of asthma in the Bronx, um, and that's probably one of the highest rated uh, neighborhoods um, that uh, have the, the highest rates of asthma cases. Um, and it's interesting to think about um, why and how uh, does that happen. One of the things we think about is how bound, how neighborhoods are bounded uh, and what activities are uh, traversing those neighborhoods. Um, and it also brings me to think about uh, a couple episodes ago, we actually had Kathy Velikoff um, on the program. And she, if, if you're not familiar with what she's up to these days, I think you definitely want to take a look. Um, they've been tracking uh, air quality as it traverses uh, the border from uh, El Paso and Juarez. And so uh, some some things there, and then and then the last thing, simply as a a mapping technique, I'm I'm by looking at these drawings, I'm quickly reminded of uh, Laura Kurgan uh, and her work in in New York, and I'm sure you're 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 aware. So a few more uh, references out there, but uh, thank you so much. I think uh, there's definitely a lot we can we can open up. Uh, and that being said, uh, Mei Ling, if you want to uh, follow up on these uh, provocations with some some initial responses, that would be wonderful. I found myself um, in thinking about these writing and, and the work, um, asking myself three rather innocent questions. Um, and the first being maybe because of the enormity of negative impacts that, you know, Daisy describes in red lighting practices today and after comfort um, by David, <clears throat> um, I began questioning whether the enclosure by nature was inherently good or bad. Um, not so much to make a blanket judgment and call it quits and, and condemn the very act of, of, of building and architecture. There doesn't seem to be an argument that in order to survive, we need to enclose. But in thinking about both good and bad enclosures to hopefully engage with a more productive, expansive framework um, for thinking about the enclosure as incredibly dynamic, uh, multi-layered, and exponentially large space. It's not a flattened 
um, sort of boundary that components need to move, you know, through within and exit. Um, and to what extent has architecture really provided this framework for others to dynamically engage with these components? Um, the second, um, because these texts really um, make it impossible to engage with this framework um, without examining that direct relationship of the enclosure to air. And I don't know if anyone does this, but sometimes in order to recognize air as a, as a, as a living thing, I've had to personify it. And maybe because Daisy's beautiful drawings, MRT, MRS, and MRL prompted it, um, I began to think of air as a person. Um, and if it were a member of our Earth family, I've always seen it as a um, something that has a very young personality. Definitely not by age; it's no no older than than the Earth or water. But it is young in personality. It's, it's excitable and very impressionable. Um, has so much energy, like a young person. It's fast moving, eager to travel, holds a lot of chemicals within it, super extroverted with the exception of argon. But it's incredibly influenced thermodynamically by other the other two primary media. Um, and perhaps like a young person, it, it lets strangers into the mix without asking too many questions. <laughs> um, and, and so that's sort of given us this license to think that we can control it. You know, when, when um, Daniel talks about air conditioning, the fact that we can, in the verb of conditioning air, um, it's super difficult to think about that when we say we're gonna condition land and water in the same way. And the third sort of thing I was thinking about is with recognizing sort of air as a personality, something um, as a vital component of enclosure and how it moves through enclosures. How do we advance our representations of air within that full spectrum? Um, which I think Daisy's work sort of speaks to the heart of. So, you know, beginning with the sort of good and bad enclosure question, I began to think on, on three different scales about, you know, the planet, you know, our atmosphere being an enclosure, a very good one. Um, the building scale, I always go back to the traditional Malay hut found in the hot, humid um, equatorial um, plain. And I think for me as a building, it's such a successful enclosure. And on the scale of a human body, our skin um, is perhaps a very sophisticated, good enclosure. And between all three, I think what they have in common is that they, they all recognize that something has to come in. Um, but they also need to protect, almost create an embryo for something else on the inside. Um, and the conditions across, you know, uh, on both sides of the, these enclosures, these good enclosures, are nothing um, sort of extreme contrasts, right? The atmosphere has a temperature of 2,700 Fahrenheit on one side, um, and it has to somehow temper that for life um, on average at temperature 57 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and it's doing that with layers, you know, four, well, some may say five layers of gases that are moving at very different rates. Um, the human body is no exception to that. They've got to keep our internal organs at 98 degrees Fahrenheit, um, more or less, um, despite the changing seasons. Um, and so when I look at the, the hot, humid Malay hut as an example of an architectural enclosure, it seems to do something that, you know, we begin to recognize as 
um, sort of maybe the, the promise of, you know, a good enclosure. Um, it sort of brings air in, um, in all its glory, the more, uh, uh, the less dense um, humid air gets to pass in between the space of the, 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 the ground itself, the site itself and the floor of the building. And it creates this sort of buffer layer, this veranda um, made out of super permeable, breathable materials. Um, that when I began to look particularly in my own work at the interior architecture of these materials, um, these natural fibers have almost like a maze um, of pores where air is allowed to come in, choose its own adventure, even chill, offload moisture, um, and then sort of make its way out. But there's this sort of expansive world that's created in these good enclosures that is patient um, with the movement of air. Um, and so when I contrast that with bad enclosures, and to me, the epitome of that is the fully glazed office building that solely relies on air conditioning 24 seven, or you know, on the scale of the city, the urban sort of redlining practices um, that Daisy sort of identified, that involves such a steep gradient between the qualities of, or what's in these two parcels of air. Um, more critically, the collapse, that flattening of the enclosure as a monolith uh, material is, is, is really um, problematic. Um, but it's crazy to think that with the pressing of the button, um, one can grab a super innocent parcel of air near the building, ship it, strip it, pump it, dry it, deliver it at a certain speed right to our faces. And only after it's been used by us, where we've dumped all of these chemicals, heat, moisture, smells into it, we throw it right back out on the streets. Um, and so that treatment of air is, is so problematic. Um, and when I think of, you know, a way I've heard pollution being described, which is merely the act of extracting a distributed resource found in one of these primary medias on earth, whether it's the land or water or air, and then concentrating it in such a large quantity in a very small targeted location. Um, this is what we understand as pollution, right? And um, I began to think more about what is the sectional representation of a bad enclosure? Um, because it's so far beyond, you know, sort of what Daniel talks about when, when we look at the, the landscape of conditioning. Um, you know, it's deeply tied to the sectional extraction from the earth. It's long transport, you know, miles, not just to the building itself, but then through the building, you've got miles of, of space and, and vents that air has to travel to. So it's, it's pretty incredible how badly we treat air in these, in these bad enclosures. And the epitome of this is sort of the definition of what happens when some components in air radicalize. Um, you know, we see that in environmentally persistent free radicals. Um, you know, things that have had such a tough life, they've been dug up from the, um, the core of our earth and they begin to interact with, you know, the surfaces of metals. Um, and so they become so resilient um, in order to survive what we do to it. Um, and so with that cautionary tale of radicalism and um, things that might begin to cause harm, not just to us as humans, but to other elements that have to come into contact with these chemicals, 
I've sort of tried to end in a more optimistic view in terms of how to really um, thicken the enclosure again. <clears throat> and I think a lot about Frank Duffy's work. Um, it's amazing to think that this concept came from architecture. It probably is the right place to come from. Um, but his concept of sharing layers in the 1970s was so powerful um, um, in his proposition that there is no such thing as a building or an enclosure um, in the way we think of it today. But it's, it's actually, you know, a set of layers from the slow moving to the fast that are in constant movement. And so, you know, this deconstruction of these absolute boundaries um, moves it closer to this idea of the good enclosure that we see in the atmosphere and in our, in our bodies and the hot, humid Malay hut. Um, but what I'm keen to understand now, um, particularly with a 21st century lens around, you know, a lot of the issues around climate change and social justice, environmental justice that are making even more clear how um, our conceptualization is insufficient, um, can transform how we see Duffy's original proposition of sharing layers. Three of the, the things I you know, hope to maybe you know, discuss is the fact that the site um, is not something the building sits on anymore. It's, it's air, right? It's also air and it is changing. It is not the slowest moving. It's actually completely fast today. Um, uh, and maybe the stuff that we have, um, which was supposed to be fast moving and where you put furniture didn't matter, um, matters today. We've got to keep them for some reason now six feet apart, right? Um, so everything's kind of changing. Um, and at the core of that, the human is missing from Duffy's original proposal at the center of this, this enclosure. Are we the center of that enclosure? But more critically, we've, we've changed so much having lived within this, this framework um, for some time. So our changing expectations um, around comfort, our desires, even our desires to connect or disconnect with people outside of enclosures are incredibly difficult to shift. Um, and so I'm you know, keen to understand or uh, have sort of insights around what new types of rituals, modes of interactions that will allow us to sort of engage with the enclosure as this expanded territory. Thanks, Mailing. Um, a lot to think about. Uh, actually, I, I, I like the, um, the clarity of the three points that you've made for one thing. The other is um, the, the transitions of scale from the biological skin uh, through the architectural shelter uh, up to the planet make a lot of sense to me. And, and perhaps one of the challenges that um, Daniel had pointed out in the beginning, which is um, that, you know, architecture was never really meant to be sealed for one thing. And therefore shelter and the architectural lens of the, the late, uh, you know, 20, 21st century, or the, you know, the, the most recent, uh, recent decades, has been um, that the shelter is 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 not porous while the skin and uh, planet have been. Yeah, no, I really appreciate this discussion and I, and the kind of um, I, I guess in a sense the kind of richness with which we're describing again the sort of building as a kind of means of processing petroleum, right? I mean, just kind of really zeroing in on um, how to. Uh, 
what we're up against, I guess, in a way, right? In terms of these, I mean, you know, again, I still obsess about it, even though I spend so little little time in these kind of sealed spaces. Um, uh, you know, just sort of think about them aggregating across the world and building up and kind of producing all of the carbon emissions, and et cetera. And, and then really trying to think about how those spaces can, like, how can the Seagram's Tower be occupied without HVAC, right? I mean, to really start to get um, specific about these sort of forces, um, uh, sort of, you know, imagining and enforcing and kind of producing these, these post-carbon worlds but but no i appreciate it across all of the discussions this this yeah this real sense of the building is this kind of energy and climate apparatus right and and um i think that's a good approach to to keep playing out the things that you've you've pointed to uh make me think about beyond not just the air quality of these sealed environments but um solar performance you know, how these buildings perform uh, in, in recognition of energy. So Daisy said it already. She said air, energy, and waste. And I think those categories are very much all conflicted by the traditional, or let's say the light, you know, the latest, you know, hundred years about what architecture and how architecture is sealed. So, you know, we, we could even uh, think of, of Mei Ling's work on agro-waste, that the, the, uh, your point about porosity, I think, falls through in a lot of different categories. Um, porosity, not just simply air passing through a building, but how energy passes. Uh, or, you know, wind being used as an energy source, for example, for the, the very tall building. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking of the work in that housing lab um, this past um, year and this what we were trying to do in this housing lab was really try to understand how and why New York City um, was able to go through such a housing boom in, at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, in looking back at um, you know previous codes and regulations um, the the New York State Tenement Housing House House Act, excuse me, of 1901 um, was an effort to prevent the construction of dark, poorly ventilated buildings for the use of housing. And so, this emphasis—I mean, it's really like very clearly in the language—was about providing adequate light and ventilation specifically, which for me, having done this research over the summer, I'm kind of circling back around to thinking, um, you know, maybe less about the kind of elemental aspect of, of, of air, but thinking about it, you know, maybe, maybe it's a personification like Millie was talking about it, more as a, a ventilation for each apartment unit. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's in chapter three where they spend a whole section on light and ventilation specifically, um, kind of changes my approach to, um, to air because what came out of the 1901 um, New Law Tenement Act was a completely new innovative spatial arrangement of the apartments, new methodologies for construction, and it also secured green spaces for the community. So, you know, it's, and then it's also quite, um, you know, heartbreaking to know 
what came after, you know, um, FDR's New Deal, where there was a quite cha- quite big shift in providing adequate housing for everyone. Um, but this term ventilation, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about, Daniel, when you're saying, like, how do we make the Seagram's building um, not require or rely so heavily on um, HVAC, like take a window out, open up a floor. I mean, we've seen these models so much, open up one floor, make it, make it cross ventilated. I think what, what some of the tall and slender buildings are having to do for structural reasons and for wind reasons in New York city, open up a floor, um, like, uh, 432 Park Avenue, uh, Vignoli's tower, I mean, I find that just an amazing space to think about being in um, as a as a as a tenant, right? You know, just thinking about every you know eight or twelve floors. I can't remember what it is. Open it up. It, it's funny that those pencil towers, as they I guess kind of call themselves, um, one of the ways they're able to get that height is that it, floors of mechanical systems are not counted in the height limit. You know, so they have like 20 floors of HVAC, basically, that then feeds the next 40 floors, right? And they just sort of boost themselves up. So one of the things I'm thinking about is um, what is blocking the ability for these kinds of development projects, whether they're high, tall, you know, skyscrapers or large scale, uh, dense mixed use development. What is it, is it, is it a political, I'm sure it has both to do with politics and capital, but I'm, I'm curious, where, where do any of you see the, the limits or, or what's blocking, uh, us from moving forward as a, as a design field, but also as a, as, as one that's interested in the built environment? It's such a, a difficult question because there's so many components to it, but maybe jumping off of, um, you know, the Seagram building or any bit, anything that's already built, I, I feel that um, we, we, our conceptualization of when we build is so wrapped up in um, solid forming as opposed to air forming. And in a sense, it's not even just that, you know, a porous solid material, right, um, is something that might have advantages, but it's more that the this idea of air forming hasn't come to the core of the way we design. You know, it's it's not just air passing, but it's air that's carrying the energy and it's carrying the waste. And until we can be generous enough to understand how air could occupy and move, almost choreographed through our buildings. Um, You know, I think of, you know, what you just mentioned, Daisy, around, you know, opening up a floor, opening a window, Um, the careful placement of that opening um, in relation to the ways we know air wants to move um, can completely transform, um, you know, a, a building like the Seagram. Um, just like it did, you know, the hot, humid Malay hut, um, they realized there was a lot of buildup of, of hot air, um, you know, at the nook of the shading eave and the attic. And so they insert a very small um, pocket of air to allow air to escape that way. And everything changes in the environment. Um, does the skin, do we introduce a third skin outside of the, the envelope of the Seagram building? But I am super excited by when we see, you know, 
the spaces that are surrounding us, the ceiling becoming thicker or this introduction of these, these vents as, as a way of maybe engaging air forming in, in, in architecture. Mayling, there was something uh, pretty clear actually that came out of what you've just said, which is uh, the delamination of the facade um, and that the, um, the challenges perhaps are uh, that we've continuously sealed those layers, but rather um, you're suggesting that we delaminate them in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Um, you know, I think in, in both in, you know, in, in the cases that we've been presented by today, uh, there's, there's questions about uh, air as subject in all cases, in all three of your work, I think air is a, is, is becomes a kind of subject of study um, in, a, in a compelling way. How, how, do we, how do we find ways to, um, let's say, amplify the subject in fields of study and, and, and architecture studies? Or, and I don't mean in a pedagogical sense, but simply as a way of, uh, of teaching um, forms of, uh, of architecture that perhaps is, is not, you know, I, I like your idea of like solid for, from solid forming to air forming. So how do we, how do we move education to air forming? Kind of moving it itself through the virus, I would suggest mm. a little bit, right? I mean, right. there's a, there's a real sense of, um, I, I, my sense, my understanding is that there's a real sense of awareness of the lack of knowledge that we have about how aerosols behave in air-conditioned environments, and and so there's a you know there's a real anxiety in, around how to sort of redeploy more carbon-fueled ventilation systems in ways that are not harmful, right? And, and I mean I don't know if people are seeing these same studies, but. Um, whatever, it's all very young, you know, it's all very, there's, there's lots of things going on, but, but I think to, 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 to recognize that sort of, um, air quality for lack of a better term, right. Is again, it's sort of, I mean, even more so than air conditioning, although they're certainly related, but sort of, you know, becomes this sort of stark sort of space political theme again. Right. And, 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 you know, there's the extreme versions that are not the kind of Seagram's Tower, that are the like windowless schools, right, where they're just fully dependent on these, you know, ar archaic ventilation systems. I used to teach my environmental building design course in the basement of Myerson Hall. And, you know, the first thing we do is like, how, do, how can we survive in this room? Like, this is what we have to understand, you know, in case they, they come for us. And, so, so I, yeah, I think to really, to recognize that the kind of movement of air has become the project for architecture, I mean, in all of its kind of multiple dimensions, viral and climatological and uh, healthful and, and uh, toxic and, you know, so many other ways. Since your provocation has to do with designing for discomfort and um, like how we can make it pleasurable, how did you make your course pleasurable in the basement? One of the uh, you know sort of facts of life, such as they are, that we actually had no control over the environmental systems of that space, um, except for what we triggered, right? And we discovered if we waited until right at ten o'clock to all of us enter the room together, then the system, because the system gets triggered when in you know by motion, of course, so uh, the lights as well, and and so the the cooling would start later, and so it wouldn't be as because it was freezing in there, right? Because it was very uh, heavily conditioned. 
uh, you know, I think I think in some ways there's a sort of pleasure of knowledge, right? I mean, again, this sort of sense of understanding our ourselves in relationship to our sort of carbon um, positioning, right? I mean, sort of how we're operating relative to the sort of carbon that surrounds us, right? I mean, the building again is this kind of processing system for petroleum, and 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 how we interact with it, and you know. The, so our windows come up again are in these windowless buildings, right? But, uh, yeah, so that sort of knowledge as a sense of, of uh, enjoying that space in a sense, right? Of being able to understand. And uh, of course, Penn tries to be very noble about its kind of resource expenses and it all goes through this central chiller. And, you know, we map it all back to its source in the Pennsylvania coal mines, basically, right? And the source of the generational wealth, et cetera, it becomes this big, research project but um yeah so i hope the pleasure of knowledge provides something <laughs> no when you were saying that i and i loved your essay after discomfort because i having moved to the northeast from ghana um i realized every time i go back i if i go straight into an air conditioning house which my mom likes mm. to keep super chilled it's a nightmare for the rest of the Christmas or summer when I'm there, I am sweating. <laughs> I can't even talk to you. And I realized that the only way to um, adapt was to spend the first two weeks with nothing but a fan, just sweat it out. Um, mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, everything's okay. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of our rituals and, you know, our acceptance of what's in air, like, how deep our association, our negative association is with sweat um, and, you know, humidity in general. So I feel like, you know, there's, there's a level of tolerance and if we can manage it, celebration of, you know, some of the resistance that air, you know, has to our bodies that needs to be part of that, um, that effort. Um, and I don't think we do enough of that in terms of experimentation um, with air moving across different parts of our body, depending on what's in the air. Um, but I, I wonder also, you know, whether you think about that as well in terms of the personal sort of recalibration as, as part of the architectural, you know, project um, that we are, you know, sort of at the center of for the most part. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the social and cultural associations are there are probably the most difficult to shift. Um, so it's, it's, it's a huge effort and maybe we need to expand um, our tools, our methodologies in terms of, you know, not just shaping and air forming, but also, you know, our expectations, our desires. Daniel, Daisy, Mei Ling, thank you all again for being here. Wonderful discussion. This space has been sponsored by Actop Publishers and Urban Next. Subscribe to UrbanNext.net for access to exclusive digital content and visit Actor.com for the most engaging publications on architecture, urbanism and landscape architecture. Check the description box for the links to the content mentioned during this conversation. If you liked the episode, please hit the like button and share it with your network. 
Urban Next Exchanges is curated by Ricardo de Besa and myself, Marta Bouges. Feel free to contact us via email at inputbox at urbannext.net if you want to comment on the podcast or share your work with us. Thank you for listening.